I had the pleasure this past week of going to Honduras for a few days. In Honduras, we were just kind of scouting out a couple partners that we're looking at investing kind of deeply in and wanting to do church planting in Honduras. And it was a great trip, third world country, so everything that comes along with that. But it was, it was, uh, it was a fantastic trip. We really believe that God is, is at work and he's moving there, and we just want to partner in with what God is doing. I'll tell you, one of the, the things that was most profound about my week was this. I was reading in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 42. This is kind of the pre-sermon, okay? Luke chapter 19, and Jesus, this is right before kind of the Passion Week starts where Jesus will go into Jerusalem, where, where everything will kind of go down, where he'll be crucified. And he's sitting outside the city, and he's weeping. He's looking over the city, and he's weeping. And as I looked at the text, kind of a little deeper, he's not just weeping, Jesus is wailing over this city. And he's wailing over this city. He's wailing over the most religious city in the world. So don't they have it all together? They're religious people. I mean, they, they know the word. Why is he wailing over these people? Well, it's because they, don't, they haven't absorbed the word of God. They haven't seen Jesus as king. They haven't seen Jesus as Messiah. And as I was in Honduras, I was thinking about this because I'm wondering in my mind, hasn't the gospel already gone forth here, God? Why are you calling us here? And what I began to realize was this. Sure, the gospel has went forth there, and now there's a false gospel going forth there. It's a gospel that says that it depends on you to work for your salvation. You'll go around all of Seba, Honduras, and you'll not find a church that's really preaching the gospel, that it's by faith through grace alone that salvation comes. And so as I begin to think about Jesus' heart for religious people, I begin to think about our city, Atlanta. Seba, Jerusalem, Atlanta, they're not very different. We live in a religious city. Some people go to church, some people don't. People certainly know what the church is. And, and my, my heart and my prayer for us is this, is that God would give us a heart for the religious folks in our community that don't understand the gospel. Because religion without the gospel, religion without the grace of God is bondage. It's the law. And the, the question I asked myself was this, is what is our inoculation for this religious disease? You and I are prone to the same things, to just kind of the to-do list. And to just trying to climb our way up the ladder when it's really all about God's grace. What is our inoculation? Where it's this denying, self-denying sufficiency on the work of Jesus and his provision alone. That's the only hope that any of us have. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul closes out this letter to the Ephesians talking about. So last week we looked at the armor of God. We looked at the first kind of part of the armor of God in Ephesians 6. And... We said that while we're tempted to think about the armor of God being something that we kind of come up with on our own, you kind of hammer out the helmet and the, and the shield and the sword and we kind of get everything ready to roll, really what the armor of God is actually about is this provision that we find in Jesus. It's all these components of what it means to be a Christian and that's how God equips us. We said, imagine this picture, Paul is in Rome in prison pinning this letter to the, the Christians that are in Ephesus and he sees this armed guard standing beside him guarding him in prison. And he says, you know, this is probably what it's, this is what it's like to be a Christ follower. That, that, we're, that we're covered, we've been given a breastplate of Christ's righteousness. We've been given boots of peace to go and spread the gospel. We said, these are all things that Jesus Christ has clothed us with. And so I want to challenge you to look at the armor of God that way as we close out the series today. So if you would go ahead and stand as we read the word of God this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 16 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. 
In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. Shield of faith. That's what we're going to pick up in verse 16. Faith is a pretty important component of what it means to be a Christian. After all, in Ephesians 2, it says it's, it's by grace through faith. So faith is kind of the, the encompassing kind of armor of God that connects us to all the other pieces of what God has brought us into. So here's the question I begin to ask myself. In our context, why does it feel like weakness to have faith in something or someone other than ourselves? Isn't that, real, isn't that reality for us? That it feels like weakness to have faith in something or someone other than ourselves. Have you ever been skydiving before, anybody? Anybody skydiving? You and me, we're in the club. It's good. Skydiving, it's fun. So I think a lot of us approach faith, I think we're tempted to approach our faith kind of like a parachute. We'll do all that we can do on our own, and then when we get into something we can't get ourselves out of, we'll pull the ripcord. And we'll say, God save us. What if we begin to look at faith as the first thing that we picked up instead of the last thing that we picked up in the armor of God? How, what would God do with that? When we view faith this way, I think that we have, we're tempted to have too large of a view of ourself and too small of a view of God. Because we think that we're actually capable of more than we actually are. But we're, we're really not. Nothing teaches me more about faith than having children. Can I get an Amen. We've got a forthcoming self-feeder in the house, okay? You know what I'm saying? So that means, that means he thinks that he can eat on his own, but he really can't. You know what I'm saying? So, so we give him food, and we, we put it on the fork for him, and he, he does things like eat it, right? No, he flicks it all over the room. It goes all over the place. And every time we try to feed Roman, and some of you know Roman and know that he is, he's going to give us a run for our money. When we try to give Roman food, he's like, eh. He's like, I want to do it myself. He has this view of himself that he's capable when he's really incapable. He, he thinks he's much bigger than he is. That's the first problem. And, and the second thing is he doesn't have faith in me as his father or his mother. Roman thinks that he knows better than dad. And then I have to do these things like I have to manipulate him to trust me, right? So I do like the airplane thing. And sometimes I'm flying around the globe, you know, I'm going all over the place just to get him to take a bite. But the truth, the truth is this, church. If Roman didn't have Megan and I as his parents, he'd starve. If he didn't have us, he wouldn't be able to live. Kids have to have parents. It's the way that God has set this whole thing up. And we're the exact same way with God. If we think that we can live life independently of King Jesus, 
We are, we are sadly mistaken. We are, we are spiritually starving if we think that we can do this without God. So how do we overcome in the midst of this? We've seen in Ephesians 6 that there's this battle going on, and it's, it's like, what is going on? Spiritual warfare, the devil. These are kind of all, you know, question marks in my mind. So how do we overcome? Well, 1 John 5.4 has this just very just poignant verse of Scripture that really has helped me understand what it looks like to overcome the enemy in the sense of, of life. John says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We need a new birth church, and with that new birth comes this new, new life, this new provision that we have in Jesus. And faith is the thing that holds all that together. So what is the source of this victory? What is the source of this victory? Well, it's, it's a relationship with Jesus. And, and, you know, when it comes to faith, there's a lot of talk about, about the size of your faith. The, the, people, the people that live in our community... I typically have a theological slant. If, they, if, they're, if they're religious people, they're probably typically going to have a theological slant that says that it's the size of your faith that matters more than the object of your faith. And so if you can just gain more faith, if you can just, get, if you can just believe in yourself more, you can do it. You can do anything if you believe in yourself. The problem is that we don't see that anywhere in the Bible. God is far more concerned about the object of your faith than the size of your faith. This is why we see passages in the scripture like the widow's might, this widow that doesn't have much, but she has faith. This is why you see lots of passages about little children. They don't have a lot, but they have faith in God. And I just want to challenge you with that, first for yourselves, but also for a way to love your neighbor. Because you and I have been called to love our neighbors. And, and so many of them are trying to do life on their own. And I'm tempted to go the same way try to do life on our own, and we're trying to conjure up something in ourselves that will be sufficient to save ourselves. We're trying to, to get enough faith in ourselves to do something when really what we see from Ephesians 2 is that faith has always been a gift from God. It's not anything that we can do on our own. So what then is faith? Is it just this cognitive belief? James chapter 2 has an interesting phrase about faith. And, and the Greek word for faith is pistis. And the way that James uses it here is he translates it as belief instead of faith. But so when you hear the word believe, it's the same word as faith. I want you to hear James 2, 18 and 19. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. And listen to this right here. You believe that God is one. Believe. That's that word faith. You have faith that God is one. And he says, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Cognitive belief in God is not enough. After all, the demons, the enemy believes that God is one. He has faith that God is one. So what is faith? What are the components of faith? Is it just me just saying I believe in God? Or is there something that kind of comes more along with God raising a life from the dead? I was reading a book this week called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. It's by this guy named John Murray. And he, he, he summed it up very well. And he says this, that faith is knowledge, conviction, and trust. So that, that's kind of what makes up faith for us. It's, it's knowledge. It's, so it's the, the cognitive comprehension. It's conviction. So, so that knowledge, it moves down into our hearts. It moves down into our being. And then it works its way out through our hands in trust. That's what faith is. So it's not absent of our mind. But that's not all there is to it. It's, it's knowledge, it's conviction, 
and it's trust. It's your head, it's your heart, and it's your hands. So if we say that we believe in God and it doesn't work its way into our affections and our heart and the way that we respond in life, then we probably don't have the saving faith that God had imagined. It works its way out and through our hands. And so we live a life that looks faithful to Jesus. We do things that are kind of unordinary for people in the world because we, we see something else. We see that Jesus is re, the, ruling and reigning and, and we're not king. And also as we think about this, I think it's important to think about the fact that all people are people of faith. Sometimes people will say, yeah, yeah, I'm a person of faith or this and that. All people are people of faith. The, the question in what is the object of our faith? It's not, it's, not, it's not enough to just say, hey, I'm a person of faith. Well, the object of our faith as Christians is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we believe, we truly believe, we lean with everything that we have as Christians on the work of Jesus. Now, the work of Jesus then empowers us to live this life of righteousness. That's what the, the armor of God is all about. He says, therefore, stand in the armor of God. Stand in the work of Jesus. Take up the shield. So the question that we ask ourselves is this, what am I really trusting to protect me? You know, because the shield of faith, it's important to look at kind of what the shield actually is. He would have kind of had a Roman shield in mind. And, and you know, whenever I think about a shield, I think about my kid's little toy shield that they have. You know, you take it out and we're running around, we're like, ah, you know, playing, playing war in the house. And, but the shield that they would have had in mind would have been basically about the size of that door over there. So think about that size. That's what the shield would have been. And, and the shield would have been covered with like an animal skin or something like that. And the reason would be to put out the darts of the enemy. So what, what, are, the, what are the darts of the flaming darts of the enemy? Well, they, they, would actually, they would actually have hollow reeds as the arrow, and then they would have a point on it that had a flame on it. And that reed would be filled up with some kind of flammable liquid. And they would, they would aim to shoot that, and, and hit something that would, that would ignite, and then it would continue to burn. And so these shields, what it would do, the animal skin that was on the outside of that, it would extinguish the flame. It would extinguish the flame, and, and the shield, it would cover the whole person. It wouldn't just cover, you know, their face up here like the little shield that, that we play with at my house. It would, it would cover the entire person. The shield of faith covers all of us. Our faith is what covers everything. It's what all of the armor of God hinges on. All the provision of God for you and for me hinges on faith that the word that he gives to us is actually true, that the work of Jesus is actually true. And so we lean with everything that we have onto that work. That's what it means to take up the shield of faith. What are these flaming darts that the enemy shoots at us? These flaming darts are sometimes obvious, and sometimes we can pick those out. We're like, man, have you ever been in a moment where you're like, where did that come from? What just happened? Like, that was weird. Like, that's out of the ordinary. Sometimes the flaming darts of the enemy are trying to seduce you into believing something that's a lie, and they're very obvious. Other times they're very subtle. So let's say the enemy shoots a dart, and you're beginning to ask yourself, does any of my life matter? And you're beginning to believe this truth, that you can't go one hour without sinning, and that God doesn't love you anymore. What does God say? Take up the shield. Your sin has been casted as far as the east is from the west. Speak the truth in love. Let's say the, the enemy shoots a dart at, at you, and, and he kind of whispers this into your ear. Haven't you learned your lesson yet? Why do you keep struggling with the same sin? Or is this just me? 
You know, you do the same thing, you begin to beat yourself up. Why do you keep struggling with the same thing? How can you be dealing with these same sins? Hasn't God dealt this? God isn't real. Clearly he's not because you're struggling with the same things. We take up the shield. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Our sin has been dealt with on the cross. So we take up the shield of faith. Over and over and over again, we take up the shield because it is the only thing that extinguishes the flaming darts of the enemy. So how is, how is faith manifested in our life? What's the product of faith? I think it's helpful to, to kind of just actually go on down to Ephesians 6. I think faith is manifested in prayer. So if we're a person of faith in Jesus, we're going to find ourselves praying. Because that's where we acknowledge the tangible faith that we have, the, the fully leaning that we have on Jesus Christ. So let me read Ephesians six eighteen through 20 again for us. He talks about this life of prayer. And hey, if, if, we could just, if we could just go ahead and clear the room and say, hey, we should all be praying more, okay? Let's just go ahead and get that out of here and just say, hey, God loves you. He's not condemning you. So I don't want you to hear anything like, man, Ryan just said I need to go ramp up my prayer life a little bit more. I'm just saying that that's what it looks like for faith to manifest itself. So we could all be praying more, trust me, especially your pastor. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The only people that I know that pray are people of tremendous faith. Have you ever been around someone and you're like, you can just tell that they pray a lot, and they're always asking to pray for you, and you're always like convicted. You're like, man, you pray all the time. Jeez, what, I mean, you actually believe this stuff. It's crazy. That was a joke. So what does Paul say? He says, we pray in all instances. I think sometimes we are tempted to think that prayer is for a certain time and place in our life. It's for Sunday morning, sure we pray. It's for our closet. It's for our quiet time. But Paul says, actually, the life of faith is manifested in itself. We find ourselves praying at all times in our lives. Now, should, does the prayer look different? Sometimes it's like, hey, Lord, help me right here. Like, I'm in a mess. And we're in the middle of our work day. And, and we're really struggling to believe that the gospel is actually true for the people around us. We pray in all instances, and we realize that every moment of our lives is an opportunity to either worship God or to not worship God, to worship something else. And we, we pray in those moments, realizing that we are connected, that God is with us, that he's never left us. Even though we tend to think sometimes that God has left us, he's always with us, so we pray. He's always ready to hear us. He says we pray in the Spirit. Joel Beek used a, a, a good illustration to kind of describe what it looks like to pray in the Spirit. He says this, A small boy was being taught by his father how to steer a ship. As the boy began to steer, his father stood directly behind him. The father knew that if he didn't help his son, the boat would crash on the rocks and they would all drown. The father did not push his son aside for the father to take the helm, but what did he do instead? He leans over his son, puts his hands on his son's hands, and he guided his son's hands on the wheel. Through the Father's guidance, the Son steered the ship to safety. He says this, Likewise, my friends, we pray best when the Spirit grips our hearts and guides our thoughts, steering us in the course that He has charted for us. Just as this boy couldn't steer the ship on his own, it's not like God just says, Hey, get out of the way. Let me do this for you. 
But when we pray in the Spirit, we're realizing that God has entered into our story. It's Matthew 28, 20 that we never seem to remember, even though we remember the Great Commission. I am with you always to the end of the age. God is with us in every single moment of every single day. He says, pray with an attitude of supplication. What does supplication mean? Supplication means to lack. It means to need. I've been guilty of this before. Maybe you have been too. Someone will ask me, hey, how can I pray for you, Ryan? I'll be like, oh, I'm good. Anybody ever been there? You're like, oh, I'm good. I got this. No, it's good. And immediately in those moments, I'm like convicted. I'm like, no, I'm not good. Like, I'm obviously trusting way too much in myself right now because there are lots of things that I need. Maybe not physically, but spiritually, certainly. Well, Paul says there's just kind of this attitude about Christians where we're always in need. We're always in need because God's kingdom has not been consummated. It's not come fully yet. So we always have need for God's, the reality of God's grace to become more real in our lives. In our thought life, in the way that we behave around certain people, all, all of this. So we're always in need. And the indicator that we're kind of doing life on our own is when we can't think of anything to pray for. So Paul says, with all supplication, pray. John Piper says this, The number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of a believer is that they turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. And listen to this, Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is the accomplishment of a wartime mission got nothing to add to that, right? I mean, that's just rich right there. So, so let us not miss this. That the, the prayer Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. So as we see ourselves dispersing as the family of God into our lives this week, do we see ourselves in the middle of a war? Uh, the middle of a war that's been won, but we're still fighting because we're still on this side of heaven. That our good Father is with us, and that He's got His hands with us on the helm of the ship. But He wants us to be in communion with Him. And that manifests itself in us praying to God in all instances. William Cowper said this, In restraining prayer, we cease to fight. We no longer fight. We say, we don't need to fight this fight anymore. I'm tired of fighting this fight. So when we cease to pray, that's what we do. He says, prayer keeps the Christian's armor bright. And Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Church, we, we've got to continue the fight. The, the battle has been won, but Jesus still has us in the middle of this war because he's drawing people into his kingdom day by day as we walk with Jesus. Next, we take up the helmet of salvation. So salvation, I, you know, it's, it's helpful to think about physiologically what the helmet protects. The helmet protects our head. Salvation protects our minds, church. The Roman helmet would have been this very heavy piece of armor that would have, I mean, probably hurt your neck if you're wearing it all day. And it protects your mind. I mean, it's such to the point where only like a hatchet from like point blank distance would would be able to affect that helmet. I mean, nothing's going to be able to penetrate that helmet. He says salvation is the same for us. And when you think about salvation... I think we're tempted sometimes to think about salvation as a past thing. 
It's only this passing, oh yeah, God, he secured salvation for us. So, so now we just kind of hang out until, until he comes to redeem us. Well, salvation really has this past, this present, and this future component to it that all is kind of encompassing about the word salvation. God has justified us. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been made righteous through the work of Jesus on the cross. And, and God looks at each of us and he declares, hey, look, not guilty. And you're like, there's a rap sheet a mile long beside you. And, and you know, the enemy's holding it up. Hey, look, look at this, God, look. And God says, not guilty, because that's what the cross was for. You've been justified. You've been made right. You are not guilty. He says, the helmet of salvation protects your mind through sanctification. So it's this ongoing process. This, it's, sanctification is the wartime component of salvation. It's where we see God making us more and more into the image of Jesus, making our kind of our justification kind of real in our life. See, it kind of works in tandem with one another where as we walk with Jesus, God conforms us more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. My friend Jeff says this, he said, you know, when you become a Christian, it's like you get this giant kind of dose of anesthesia when you first become a believer and you're a new convert. And it's like, oh man, things are great, I'm awesome. And then you begin to walk out this life, you realize that you're worse than you ever could have imagined. You know what I mean? You're like, man, I have more sin than I could have ever imagined. And then we see our need to be sanctified and be made like Jesus. And we, this is all work of grace. It's not like we just kind of do this on our own and we're, and we're kind of after this. But this is all a work of grace. This is the, the helmet of salvation. And in the future, we look forward to glorification. When, when our reality is the fact that we are only and always with Jesus and we're never sinning anymore because sin has been eradicated. And that's what it means to be with Jesus forever. But we're on this road now. God's kingdom has been established, but it's not yet been consummated. It's here, but it's not fully here. And so we walk and we stand in the armor of God until that day comes and we seek to follow Jesus in all things. Charles Hodge once said this, that which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold up his head with confidence, is the fact that he is saved. Where is your confidence, Christian? Is it in the fact that you are saved, that you belong to Jesus, that you are not your own, that you've been bought with a, a price? Because that's what it means to walk this out. And lastly, we pick up the sword of the Spirit. So, sword of the Spirit is kind of our offensive weapon. And I asked some of you last week to look at Jesus' temptation. I think it's in like Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is in the wilderness and Satan comes to tempt him. And how does Jesus respond to Satan in the middle of that temptation? What does he do? Well, he uses very specific words of God to kind of shut down the enemy's schemes. I think this is the same thing that Paul has in mind when he says, pick up the sword of the Spirit. Like, quit messing around with the enemy. Shut him down. You have the power to do this. You have my word. Paul has the same thing in mind for us here. And, you know, there's two, there's two words for the word word in the Bible, uh, two Greek words. One of them is logos and one of them is rhema. So the logos is the more commonly used word for the complete and total word of God. But here, for some reason, Paul uses the specific word rhema for the word word here. And so, rhema is very similar to logos, but it's, it, it likely refers to the word actually becoming to, 
to bear on our conscience and being actualized by faith in our life. So it's, it's when we actually put things into play, we actually have faith that the word is true and it's actually life to us. So when we believe those words that are in the scriptures, God gives us faith to believe those. That's what it means to, to pick up the sword. Jerry Bridges said, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> and then he says this, you can't be trusted to tell yourself the truth. Stay in the word. We can't, be tr- we can't trust ourselves. We'll lie to ourselves every single day. These little kind of deceptions of somebody looked at me funny or they cut me off in the parking lot or you know, my boss was kind of he was in my office a lot today. We start telling ourselves all these lies and then we start believing them. We can't trust ourselves to tell ourselves the truth. This is why God has given us his word. We must be in it. It's interesting that the longest book in the Bible, Psalm 119, is all about the word of God. You find that interesting? Psalm 119, verse 11 says this, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Church, this this is what we must be about. This is why we have to be people of the word because there's a war at hand. Jesus has defeated the enemy, but we're still in the midst of this wartime battle. Faith, the faith that God has given us manifests itself in the way that we pray and seek for that word to kind of become real in our lives. In closing, I just want to share this with you. Someone asked me a great question last week. They said, how is it that God is at war even though the enemy is submissive to him? So last week we kind of talked about how every scheme that the enemy has, he has to go ask God for permission to tempt people. It's this wild thing. And the truth is, I don't think God's at war. God's not at war. King Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. And he's interceding for us. He's, he's, Jesus is sitting down. He's not at war anymore. When, when he rose from the dead, the enemy was shackled. Now, does he still have influence in the world? Absolutely, but he can no longer deceive the nations. But I think God has seen fit in his sovereignty to place you and I in war because it's the best thing for us. Because in, in putting on the helmet of salvation, he makes us more and more into the image of Jesus, increases our trust and our faith more and more as we're in this wartime battle. It's the best thing for us. So instead of running away from the battle that we see all around us, what if we were to embrace it and stand in the finished work of Jesus Christ? I think that's what the book of Ephesians is all about. Ephesians 6 is all about. So God's placed us in war, but he's not left us here without his provision. So we stand in God's provision, not for God's provision. That, my friends, wraps up our time in Ephesians. So let's pray together. Father, so good to be in your word, just seeking you this morning. God, we pray that you'd continue to grow us in this. Pray that we'd look back at this first series we've done as a church and see that it laid a foundation for us that's very important. So God, I pray that you would, you would make these words real in us today, that we would see that the that the battle has been won, that Jesus is, is risen and reigning, and that we are co-heirs with Christ. Help us to, to seek first the kingdom, to look first at the face of God instead of our circumstances in all that we do this week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.